an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, it might be Seattle's most iconic image, and 60 years ago it helped save Lake Washington. And our scrawny little butts were looking out over a polluted lake and a sign that said, warning, no swimming polluted water. And then, from the archives, rewinding the tape on late great Seattle band, The Heats. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And here he is, our resident historian Felix Bunnell, who joins us every Friday for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, the owners of Johnny's Restaurant in Fife, which closed in March of last year because of the pandemic, announced that they will not reopen. However, do not worry because Felix tells us Johnny's Seasoning Salt is here to stay. Hi, Felix. Do you ever get a prank call from someone saying, hey, do you have Johnny in your cabinet? Do you have, do you have Johnny's in your spice cabinet, Dave? Never. I mean, I never okay. got a call like that. And as for having Johnny's <laughs> in my spice cabinet, I've not been to the back of my spice cabinet in 20 years. Okay, well, Johnny's Seasoning Salt. It's one of those local products like we've talked about here before. You know, mountain bars, apples and cutlets, farmers pickles. And like all of those products, it's really a family story. And the Johnny's of the Seasoning Salt is a guy named Johnny Meeker. He grew up in Seattle, worked as a young man at the famous Crawford's Restaurant north of downtown in the 40s. He opened Johnny's Dock on Theofoss Waterway in Tacoma around 1953, and that's where the seasoning salt was developed. It has garlic and sugar and salt and paprika in it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a special thing. People out in the Northwest know what I'm talking about. Around 1955 is when Johnny and his wife started packaging and selling it. They got a big boost in sales from having a booth at the 62 World's Fair, and they developed a whole series of other things like dressings and marinades and that kind of thing. Now, Johnny's in Fife, the restaurant that was, uh, that's not going to open, not going to reopen, that op- uh, goes back to 1968, was taken over by his grandson in the 80s. And Johnny's Dock also is apparently permanently closed. Looks like that parcel of land is being sold for major redevelopment. And Johnny was a larger-than-life character. He smoked cigars and drove a red Cadillac Eldorado and came to the office practically every day up until the time he died at age 96, about 20 years ago. Now, the seasoning salt manufacturing and distribution was sold off about a decade ago. It's a separate company still known as Johnny's Fine Foods. The president and CEO is a guy named Kevin Ruda, who I spoke with yesterday. He reassured me that the permanent closure of the restaurant has no effect whatsoever on the seasoning business. He said the seasoning salt and this Aju mix they have are their two biggest sellers. They've got an office in Tacoma. They do a lot of manufacturing around other parts of the Sound. Now, I asked Kevin Ruda to tell me the secret recipe for the seasoning salt, and he wouldn't share it. Um, he's, <laughs> I was surprised, yeah. He said when they bought the company, you know, 10 or 11 years ago, part of the sale included all the secret recipes. And I really fixated on this, as I sometimes do, and got him to describe this sort of three-ring binder um, with all these sheets inside. Some were handwritten, some were typed. And this is something you think would be in a vault, right? But uh, Mr. Ruda said he hasn't seen the binder for a while and told me it's probably somewhere in his desk. Um, not exactly the Coca-Cola recipe being hidden away. I was going to ask involved. you, why don't you go after the Coca-Cola recipe? Yeah. You know, and, uh, another thing is applets and cutlets and Bartell Drugs, these local companies that have sold recently because the next generation didn't want to take over the family business. With that in mind, I asked Kevin Ruto, you know, he's in his late 60s, if he has any sons or grandsons named Johnny who might be willing to take over the business, and he said no. But can you guess what Kevin Ruto's middle name is, Dave? No. It's John. And, but he has John. no plans to name it, rename everything Kevin Johnny's. But mm, so I, I, I think it's in bad. good hands. I think Johnny's seasoning salt's now sold all over the world, and it's it's here to stay. 
Now, Johnny Meeker, is that the Meeker family? No, it's spelled differently. It's M-E-A-K-E-R, different from Ezra Meeker. It's a totally different set of Meekers. But, yeah, a very famous Northwest name in in different sectors. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Dave. Right from the start, Spokane's charm and lively spirit put us in a holiday mood, which was heightened when we reached the country club where the Washington State Open Golf Tournament was in progress. A 1958 photo of a group of children in swimsuits standing with their backs to the camera on the shore of a polluted Lake Washington might be one of the most iconic images in Northwest history, and our resident historian Felix Bunnell is here to explain all about it. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Morning, Dave. Yeah, so we're on the cusp of summer, and it might be a fairly normal swimming season on Lake Washington, where life, lifeguards will be on duty at many city beaches beginning a week from Friday. Now, back in the 1950s, post-war suburban growth around the lake had outstripped the infrastructure, and Lake Washington had become a polluted open sewer. A young civic leader named Jim Ellis led a campaign to create a countywide agency to clean up the lake by building a new regional sewer system. Now, this required a public vote to create the Metropolitan Council, or Metro, and that was the first step. Now, in March 1958, that measure failed, but it went back to the ballot for September 9th, 1958, and for that second try, a poster was created, and I have a picture of it on my Twitter feed. The poster features an iconic photo, five kids in swimsuits. There's a sign that says, warning, polluted water, unsafe for bathing. Now, one of those kids, the little guy in the middle, was Keenan Block. He's a former journalist and longtime public affairs guy. I met up with him recently at Matthews Beach. So my sort of extraordinary and very minor claim to fame is I'm a native Seattleite. And when I was four years old, back in 1958, my parents dragged me and my siblings to Lake Washington to be in a photo shoot for the Metro campaign, which was a campaign to clean up Lake Washington. We were dumping raw sewage into it back in those days. And it was an effort to get the voters to pay for sewage treatment. And our scrawny little butts were looking out over a polluted lake and a sign that said, warning, no swimming polluted water. And the poster that became rather classic said in huge letters, emergency, clean up our filthy lake. So if you're following along at home, Keenan's in the middle, his late sister Susanna's on the left, uh, his brother comes next, there's Daniel Keenan's right, and his late brother Adam on the far right. Now, it was no random occurrence the Block family was featured in the iconic photo and poster. The reason uh, us Block kids got roped into it is my parents were political activists and social do-gooders, and the folks involved in the Metro campaign had tried earlier to pass this referendum unsuccessfully, and they were sort of baffled that, you know, going around with public health officials and doctors saying it's really not good to have raw sewage being spewed into the lake and it still failed. 
they realized their mistake was going after folks' heads, not their hearts. Said, we need some kids who can't swim, and don't Bob and Dorothy Block have a slew of them? So they called my parents up, and they got all of us to get in our bathing suits and drove us here to Matthews Beach and took the photo that became that iconic Metro poster, and it passed. Now, I don't know who did the graphic design for the poster, but the picture was taken by a photographer named Howard Staples. He began his career in Los Angeles in the 1930s and came to Seattle around 1940 or so to work for the old Seattle Post-Intelligencer. A lot of his journalism photos are in the collection of the Museum of History and Industry. He passed away back in 1996. Now, a longtime photography curator at Mohais, Howard Giske, he's retired, but he's still an expert on Seattle-area photography going way back. He knows Howard Staples' work, and he knows this photo, and he puts it in the top tier of recognizable local images. Well, I think it was an early, really good example of of photo activism, if you will. This was a a news photographer, working news photographer, who was probably doing this work as as a favor to the political campaign, and it was a brilliant photograph. How how in the world are you going to document the need for cleaning up sewage in a beautiful lake without people? And he picked just the right people to do the, 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 the picture, great landscape of the lake itself, and children, innocent children, children that want to go swimming, and that picture just did the job. And it's really hard to point to an image that even comes close as a second in terms of being recognizable and having made a difference in something like a political campaign. Now, I met Howard Staples several times when I was a teenager back in the 80s. I was too dumb to ask any questions about the photo, but he was like this guy from another time. He was sort of dapper and fastidious, sort of reserved and serious, kind of like literally from another time. I reached out to his granddaughter, Tenny Preby, who works as an executive producer at a Seattle creative agency. You know, details about how her grandfather came to, be the one, came to be the one to take that photo are not really clear. But he definitely was part of the social circles that would have put him in contact with the Block family, with the Metro people, with Jim Ellis. And Tenny confirmed my visual recollections of her grandfather. He was a very stylish man. You know, he always was wearing, like, lightweight wool pants and a really nice sweater. You know, he had this great mustache and those sort of artsy 50s and 60s glasses that he would wear and I kind of actually have taken to wearing those that now they now they would be considered that sort of ubiquitous creative director glasses (laughs) so I guess it sort of runs in the family with uh, Howard Staples granddaughter now details are scant for so many of the classic images from that era of photojournalism you know when it was the 1930s to the 1960s the newspapers weren't exactly crediting photographers very well. It didn't really start till the 1960s. So, so many of the great images from the Depression, from World War II, from the, the post-war period, we don't know who shot those images. Now, I wasn't able to track it down, but Keenan Block told me about one more iconic image from the Metro campaign of 1958. They used to have something called the picture page, as you may recall, in the paper, and it was like page three, and it was four or five large images. After... It passed. The next morning, the PI sent a photographer to our house, and they had all of us kids in our pajamas with our bathing suits in hand, sort of in the living room, (laughs) waving our bathing suits joyously. I'd love to see that. If someone has that lying around. Now, you know, Metro eventually took over the old Seattle transit system back in the 70s. And the whole thing was folded into King County government back in the 1990s. So it really was a monumental vote, that September 9th, 1958 vote. Now, Jim Ellis, he passed away not too long ago, back in 2019 right. at age 98. 
Metro was just really his first step. He led the forward thrust effort to create all that infrastructure and buy all those parks, build the kingdom. And he led the Mountains to Sound Greenway, which recently became a, nat- a natural national heritage area. So a guy who never held elective office but did so much stuff um, to create the world we live in now. But it all began with a photo of some kids who wanted to swim in Lake Washington. Yeah. And can you imagine if they hadn't done that, what Lake Washington oh, would be like today? God, we, we'd regret it every day. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful thing that happened, what is that, 64 years ago? Yeah. Think about it every time you pay your sewer bill, right? Yeah. <laughs> what a bargain. <laughs> bargain at twice the price. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives... Forty years ago, they were the next big thing. But whatever happened to Seattle band The Heats? Felix Bonnell is here. It's not scratchy the, music. Brushing, <laughs> brushing the moss off his shoulders, emerging from the crypt to tell us about something of great public import or terrible tragedy. Except today, this is, uh, this is a, a retro look at uh, Seattle's rock history. Yeah. And the significance of that bumper music is that it's a group called what? The Heats. And the it's heats. sort of a palate cleanser. All the bad news lately, all this political stuff. I'm kind of tired of it myself. I like going back into the time machine and pulling out something kind of fun. What's the name of that tune? That's called I Don't Like Your Face. I Don't Like Your Face. Yeah, big four. Here's the 45. Here's the original single right here from 1980. It was a local band called The Heats, originally called The Heaters. They're huge, huge band. They were going to be the next big thing. You know, everybody wrote glowingly about them. They packed clubs. You know, they were uh, three guys from Kenmore, one guy from Mercer Island, Steve Pearson and Don Short on guitars and vocals, Keith Lilly on bass, and a guy named Ken Deans on drums. They formed in 1978, almost an instant hit. Played all these brilliant original songs, which was unusual in those days. Most bands were playing sort of top 40 stuff that people would recognize, kind of just to get people dancing. Mm-hmm. But they played these brilliant songs they'd written themselves, like that one we just heard. Eric Lasidas, who was with the Seattle Times back then, yeah. took a liking to these guys and started writing these glowing columns, including this front of the page of the local section, big giant photo thing, one Saturday in May 1979. So talking to Ken Deans a few days ago, he's sort of the unofficial spokesman for the band. He would probably object to my saying that. But he said that day the Seattle Times story came out, it was like fame happened to them overnight. He called it a light switch moment. They played a Friday night gig at this place called The Shire in West Seattle. So then they went out to The Shire Saturday night for the second night of the gig. So the next night we go to The Shire. And honestly, Friday night, there had been 15 to 20 people in the club. <laughs> so we pull up in the back. There's one space left. And Keith goes, wow, there's only one parking space left. There might be some people here. <laughs> And we walk in the back door, the club is packed, and there's a line halfway down the street. Wow, newspapers once had power. They really did, yeah, yeah. And it just grew through, from there, you know, throughout 1979 and 1980. They toured with Heart. They toured with The Knack. Remember that song, My Sharona? They did part of a national tour with this man no. called The Knack. Wow. You don't remember My Sharona? Wow, yeah, Dave. Of you're, you're, you're dating yourself, Dave. I remember the Gooey Duck song. Yeah, that's another. So they released a single, the one we heard. They they released a full-length LP. Eric Lasidas kept writing these amazing columns, calling attention to their talent. And it's all about the talent. The songs really stand up. Let's hear a little bit of Call Yourself a Man.
hear the harmony, and just, it's brilliant yeah. songwriting. But it's, the songs seem to have a theme of scolding people. Like, I don't like your face. <laughs> Call yourself a man. They're, they're, but they're happy ones, too. But what, the songwriting is just, it's, I mean, everybody was in yeah. a band in those days, right? But, and everyone has their old tapes. But these, you play these back, well, and they still good. sound really good. Yeah. That. So for whatever reason, they couldn't get a major label deal. It might have been too late for the power pop craze. that was. Well, just the, put it on YouTube. Well, <laughs> YouTube didn't exist in 1980, oh. Dave. You remember that. So, you know, that the pressure kind of uh, built on the band and disappointment about not getting uh, getting signed kind of tore them apart. The bass player, Keith Lilly, left, and Ken Deans left. Both those guys were replaced. In late 1983, Don Short, who was half of the songwriting team with Steve Pearson, decided he didn't want to continue anymore. They played a big farewell show at the Astor Park down at 4th and Lenora in the shadow of the monorail there, mm-hmm. New Year's Eve, 1983. Ken Deans, you know, he says he knows he was part of something amazing, but he said they couldn't quite grasp the brass ring. But they had a big influence on the next generation of musicians. You know, Dave Dieter of the Presidents of the United States of America, he was a huge, huge Heats fan. Um, big influence on lots of bands of that era. And, you know, and there's no reunion plans right now. Some of the other musicians, uh, some of the other guys in the band are continuing in the music industry. You know, Steve Pearson, um, Don Short. And, uh, you know, Ken Deans is philosophical about what it all really means. You know, the legacy for him is kind of personal and for the other members of the band. We were really lucky and really fortunate. And, you know, it's something that, um, we all get to hold on to, you know, we, we kind of all have this like purple heart that, <laughs> that we all get to keep and no one can ever take that away from us. Not- okay. So where, where can you find their music? You know, now that we've got people interested. Well, ever since 2006, there's been this thing called YouTube. And in that interim, like sort of uh-huh. between 1980 and 2006, you had to have one of these thousands of records the Heats had sold. And if you didn't, you were out of luck, right? And there have been some foreign reissues on CD, but now most of it's on YouTube. And we have it links is. at the story at MyNorthwest.com. Um, do we have a chance to hear one more song? Sure. One of the happier songs? How about Nights With You? Yeah, no, it's it's Beatlesque, but there's definitely there's a western there's a western twang to it that makes it distinctly Northwest, and it's just a shame these guys didn't make it huge. And what year was this again? That's from 1980. Okay, it's incredible. And then you know they well they after this segment their YouTube hits are going to be in the millions now. (laughs) I think they might, and no one will make a penny, just like the current modern music industry. (laughs) So anyway, really great local, great Northwest band, and huge huge part of the legend of music around here. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.